0: Surely you don't really believe that. How can you possibly think it's true in this day and age? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I expect you have heard things like that said to you at some point. People questioning us, uh, perhaps even deriding us, for believing that the Bible is true, and especially for believing its account of creation And the flood or the gospel itself that we can be saved through the sacrifice of Christ. And this is why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, scoffers will come in the last days. And of course scoffers is not a reference to those of us who like to stand by the table at the church buffet. Uh, It's those who scoff at what we believe or who mock as some translations have it. Mockers they think they're undermining scripture, don't they? But actually, if you think about it, they're fulfilling this particular scripture when they mock us, Uh, fulfilling exactly what it's predicting here and confirming that this is true, that scoffers or mockers will come in the last days. So in that sense, a kind of discouragement can almost be an encouragement, can't it? And I'm sure many of you know that last days doesn't, only mean the days just prior to the end of this age and Jesus' return is a reference to the gospel age, uh, the time between the first coming of Jesus as a baby at Bethlehem uh, and his return. That's why Hebrews 1 opens with those words, in these last days God has spoken to us by his son. So that means there were scoffers when Jesus was on earth, and we know that from the gospel record, don't we? There were scoffers in the days of the early church, we see that in Acts and there have been scoffers throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. In fact, Peter, like Jude, who we referenced this morning, is writing his letters to counter the influence of false teachers. This, and their scoffing here is directed at that very thing, the promise of Jesus' return. Verse 4 here of Second Peter 3 says that they say, where is the promise of his coming? There's a, there's a chap in our, our own village who is very polite, but he's very opposed to the Christian message, and um, he he uh, he we try, he's one of those who tries to still say that Jesus didn't even exist. But he'll say that he say, Jesus isn't coming back, you know, just like this. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, I've got five P's this evening, and this is the first one: God's promise, Jesus is returning. God's promise, Jesus is returning. Uh, Old Testament prophecies include the second coming, don't they? Looking even ahead to that, when Daniel speaks of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus himself said, I will come again and receive you to myself. After the ascension, the angels said uh, to the disciples, this same Jesus will so come in like manner as you saw him go. Paul writes, O Lord, come. And John puts it like this, even so, Lord Jesus, come. And the fact that the Old Testament prophecies of the first coming came true and the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead as he said he would make their every reason to believe that the New Testament promises or the Old Testament promises of the second coming will also be fulfilled. But what's the motivation of these scoffers? Well, verse 3 says they're walking according to their own lusts. What a contrast with walking with God, as we considered this morning. Walking according to their own lusts. They want to keep on doing whatever it is they want to do. And that is incompatible with the return of Jesus. Because coming, he, he, he's coming, isn't he, again, to judge the world and to hold people to account for their sin. The scoffers say in verse 4, Since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were, from the beginning of creation now some say that rather than old testament ancestors this refers to actually people who'd recently died and had been expecting jesus return uh, and they didn't see it so he can't be coming back that's how they reason isn't it uh uh, one way or another they're they're saying look there's not going to be a reckoning there's not going to be a judgment nothing's really changed since the beginning Now, this, this I always think, has an application, and it's very relevant to the the origins debate. I don't know if you've heard of uniformitarianism, which is the sort of dominant, uh, or has been, the dominant view in, in the field of geology, that the present is the key to the past. In other words, if we observe things going very slowly today, processes like erosion and sedimentation, well, then they must have always been going that slowly, and that's why we can deduce the long, long ages for the, for the earth, so they say. The same assumption underlies that radiometric uh, dating that we mentioned earlier. You know, isotope decay rates surely haven't changed, so that's why we can use them to measure time. But there is, of course, uh, in fact, in, in mainstream geology today, that that's changed. There is a view known as neocatastrophism even a a non-biblical variety. The idea that, no, actually, it's sudden dramatic events in history that have radically changed things in the physical world. And those processes that may be observed going slowly today have actually been speeded up in the past. Now, that may not be what Peter is actually referring to here, but in a way, that is how he reasons against the scoffers. Because what he does is he points back to two great events in history, which show, and here's the second P, God's power. So God's promise, Jesus is returning. God's power, he's intervened before. And he's intervened before at creation and at the flood. Verses five and six. He says, this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded by water. So it's not reasonable to assume that things will continue as they are because God has intervened before at creation and with the flood of Noah's day. So first of all, creation, verse 5, by the word of God, the heavens were of old. Genesis opens, doesn't it, with those majestic words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a creationist in the States I, we really recommend uh, called Kurt Wise. You may have come across him. Uh, and, uh, in fact, he gave a series of talks at the Met Tab a, a few years ago. Um, uh, and one of them was on this very subject that that phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, you think of it as a, if you think of it for a moment as a scientific hypothesis, uh, it explains every phenomena in the universe better than any man-made theory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, explains why there is a universe as opposed to there not being one. No other explanation for that. It explains the man-centeredness of the universe. It explains the beauty and the origin and the complexity of life and of living things. It, it, it explains our self-awareness and our consciousness and our will. All of these are consistent with God creating. No other explanation comes anywhere close now the earth did have a watery birth one way or another genesis 1 verse 2 says the earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the face of the waters that's what peter's referring to here the second day of creation the waters were divided to separate them forming space and then the waters on earth were gathered to one place to let dry land appear perhaps one great continent and one great ocean And creation was by God's word. That's how it came about. What made the difference between the darkness and the chaotic void and then the order and the pattern that followed? God's word made a difference. God said, let there be light. God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. God said, let the dry land appear. You see, he intervened in power by creative command. And God's word, of course, that also speaks to us of a person. God's word, as Glenn Scrivener put it recently, God's word is not a who, uh, sorry, not a what, but a who. God's word is not a what, but a who. John says, doesn't he, in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that's how he begins his biography of Jesus. For all things were made through him. So we can be sure that Jesus is coming again, God's final intervention in this sinful world. Because he is the very creator who intervened to bring light from darkness and land from water when God spoke at creation. And then as we said we have the flood in verse 6. By which the world that then existed perished being flooded by water. Due to man's continual wickedness at that time God intervened in his power with a great decreation. That's what the flood was. A decreation in order for there to be a recreation. And the world we live in today is one that was reshaped by the flood. Global patterns of sedimentary rock layers uh, across the world and fossils in it rapidly buried in water quite clearly. They cry out, God intervened. Sin was judged. And again, it was the word that made the difference. The flood is not just an Old Testament Sunday school story. It is pivotal in history. It ushered in the era of grace with the cross at its centre in which we are still living. And it mirrors the second coming, which will be another decreation in order for there to be a recreation, as we'll see. And remember they scoffed at Noah, didn't they, for building the ark and for preaching righteousness, but the flood came. As Jesus himself affirms in the Gospels, as it was in the days of Noah, he says, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, and the flood came and destroyed them all. God intervened before. There's no reason to doubt that he will intervene again. And it's interesting, isn't it, that the scoffers, in verse 6, we're told they willfully forget those two things, creation and the flood. They choose to forget that these are real history. You know, the more uh, I'm involved in this origins ministry, in fact, it's it's a very exciting time. Uh, The kind of research that is challenging the mainstream view, the, the evidence that is consistent with creation and the flood becomes more and more abundant as our technology increases, whether it's the soft tissue that we find in dinosaur bones showing that they must be much younger than, than, than thought, or the lack of ancestral forms of living things in the fossil record before the Cambrian explosion, or modern genetic studies that are showing how, how similar we humans are to each other across the world, how recently our shared ancestor lived, uh, the gaps between groups of living things, both in the living world and in the fossil record, and the irreducible complexity in so many structures at the cellular molecular level such as DNA. But, you know, belief in a single common ancestor and the belief in the long ages, the millions of years, required for that to have happened are ultimately driven by atheistic naturalism and a refusal to consider any supernatural cause. One evolutionist famously admitted we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. And yet true science just goes where the evidence leads. But you see, the God who spoke the universe into being will intervene again. And that's our third point, God's plan, fire and judgment. God's promise, Jesus is returning. God's power, he's intervened before. God's plan, fire and judgment. Look at verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. The heavens and the earth are being sustained, continuing in relative stability. What for? For fire. Judgment by fire. It's a common theme, isn't it, throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments. Deuteronomy 32, a fire is kindled in my anger. It shall consume the earth. Isaiah 66, a prophecy, again, looking forward to the second coming. The Lord will come with fire to render his anger with fury. Malachi 4, all who do wickedly will be stubble and the day which is coming shall burn them up. And what about the Lord Jesus himself? Matthew 3, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 1 Corinthians 3, going into the epistles, each one's work will be revealed by fire. 2 Thessalonians 1, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel. God said he'd never completely flood the world again. But final judgment will be by fire. It's 2,000 years ago and Peter is warning us about global warming, isn't he? We shouldn't be surprised if we are warming up because we're heading to an ultimate heat event. The likelihood is we've been warming since the ice age that followed the flood, although there's been cycles of cooling too, but that's another story that we won't go into now. But look at verse 12. The heavens will be dissolved being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat everything we have is going to melt, we best not get too attached to it. Jesus is coming in great glory and power and as judge in judgment. That is God's plan. And we don't escape it if we die before then because Hebrews reminds us it's appointed for us once to die and after that the judgment. We will stand before him either way because being made in his image, we're accountable to him and sin is a serious affront. To His Holiness, and this word for this this word destruction. It's ruined, wasted. The destiny of the unrepentant, still without Christ. And then we have a word about God's perspective. Uh, fourthly, His view of time is not the same as ours. Look at verse eight. Now, these words, of course, are based on the words we read in Psalm ninety, verse four. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The, the scoffers, the mockers are saying, Jesus hasn't come, therefore he isn't going to come. That's their argument, isn't it? And Peter reminds us that God's perspective on time is different to ours. Now, you, you may have heard this verse being used to suggest that the days of creation might have been long periods of time. Uh, well, of course, even if they had been, there's are still 6,000 years, if, if a day is a 1,000 years, then that's still not enough for evolution from a common ancestor to have occurred. And, of course, it's the order of events that's completely different in the evolutionary story and the biblical uh, story. Uh, yom, the Hebrew word, always refers to a 24-hour day when it's associated with numbers, like the first day, the second day, and the third day. And We, we could say a lot about that. But more important than the day length, uh, and uh, it is important, I do believe there are 24-hour days, but more important, as I mentioned this morning, is the order of events. Because any view of God using evolution has to put death and suffering before the fall, and that presents a huge problem for the gospel. But no, here what Peter is saying essentially is this, look, God is outside of time. We're creatures of time. Uh, but imagine, a, imagine, if you like, a procession through a city. If you're standing in the street, if you're looking down from an office window, however long, you only see one section of it at a time. That's like our perspective on the ages. But if you were high enough, if you are in a helicopter or using a, looking through a drone camera, you might see the whole procession at once. And that's a bit like God's perspective on the ages, isn't it? He created time itself. So he must be independent of it. Or in other words, eternal. And that's why in Psalm 90 verse 2 we read, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He sees all the ages at once. And he's already determined when each event will take place. And if we think 2,000 years has been a long time to wait for the return of Christ. Well, Peter's saying, well that's like two days for God. Another 2,000 might pass for all we know. Yet it still wouldn't undermine God's promise or his power or his plan. God promised Abraham that through his seed, all nations of the world will be blessed. But it was 2,000 years till that was fulfilled at the coming of Christ. God promised the serpent that he'd put enmity between his seed and the woman's seed. Well, it was at least 4,000 years till that was fulfilled. He kept his promises of Jesus' first coming. There's no reason to doubt he'll keep them regarding his return. So the only logical conclusion to Jesus not having come yet is that his coming is sooner than it was and when shouldn't be our main concern either Jesus himself said no one knows the day or the hour but the father our concern should be trusting him for our salvation and then as his people our faithfulness to him in the meantime But in light of the coming judgment that we've spoken of, finally, fifthly, finally, there's a wonderful encouragement here. God's patience, God's patience. He's not willing that any should perish. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Peter wants us to know why it is that Jesus has not yet returned. And some are saying, well, it's slackness, or, or in other words, laziness. Imagine saying that of God himself. Someone said to me on the street one time doing some evangelism, you know, God's given up on the idea. You know, I believe he exists, he said, but God's given up on us. He's no longer active in his creation. He's no longer interested. No, this is God's patience. When Jesus comes, as we said, it's to judge sin, it's to punish sin and to usher in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. As verse 13 says here, there's no place there for sinners. There's no place there for sin. It'll be too late to repent, but God is loving and merciful as well as just. There must be the day of judgment for the ungodly, but the delay gives every opportunity for sinful people to repent to turn around completely, to change direction, from thinking you can manage without him, from going your way to going his way, and his way is Jesus himself. Every generation that has lived during the last 2,000 years where the gospel has gone has had the opportunity. You may have heard the illustration. It's as if God is holding up two hands, isn't it? One is holding back the judgment we deserve for sin, while the other is beckoning us To come to him for mercy and forgiveness. As Jesus said himself, come to me all you who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And one day God is going to drop both hands. No more invitation and the judgment uh, will fall. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that day? The first recorded words of Jesus' public ministry in Mark 1 Where the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It's not just believing the historic facts, is it? The devils do that too. No, it's putting your trust in him completely and what he has done for sinners like you and me. It's to give up any thought that you can contribute anything to your salvation. And it's to enter the riches of his grace, which alone provides the way of escape from the coming fire. How merciful! the father sending Jesus to pay for sin and then delaying his return to give time to be ready. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but to repent. Does that mean everyone will be saved? Well, the any, the everyone is all the father has given him, isn't it, in the context of all scripture. All of them will come to repentance. He's writing here to believers, of course. Uh, uh, other, Other scriptures confirm, don't they? Uh, As Jesus says, it isn't the will of your father in heaven that any of these little ones should perish. Or John 6, this is the will of the father who sent me that all he has given me, of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. For the elect's sake, judgment is delayed. And when the last one comes into the kingdom, the day will come. And you might say, well, how do I know if I'm one of them? It's very simple. Repent and believe. Acknowledge you need God's mercy. Take him at his word. Trust Jesus Christ, and then you'll know. So, God's promise Jesus is coming. God's power, he's intervened before. God's plan, uh, coming uh, fire, the fire of judgment. God's perspective, his view of time, not the same as ours. And God's patience, he's not willing that any should uh, perish. And uh, Peter's intention here, of course, in writing to the believers was to remind them of these things, or, or in writing to remind them of these things, verse 1 of this chapter, is his intention was to stir up our pure minds. And his letters call us, as verse 11 says, to holy conduct and godliness in the light of the truths that are presented here. So, friends, in the face of scoffers, be encouraged. God is in control. Nothing can thwart his plans. Jesus is coming. And if we've looked to him alone for salvation, we have nothing to fear. Continue looking to him for the strength to be faithful till the day breaks and the shadows flee away. May God help us and bless his word to us again for Jesus' own sake. Amen and amen.